0: Before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to make sure they're in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture teaches we're to abide in Christ. We're to walk in the light. We're to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. But when we sin, we're no longer abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit or walking in the light. And the way to recover is to simply confess sin which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and he instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness and restores us to a position where we're walking by the Spirit. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together this evening to uh, feast upon your word and to be reminded of your grace and your goodness, your plan for history, and how you and your, through your word, address every issue of life. You help us to understand how to think about, about the issues today that, that what we have in the scripture isn't just some, some staid old dusty uh, ancient book, but it has significance and meaning and relevance for uh, every single day today teaches us how, you, how we should live in the midst of this world that is ruled and operated by Satan. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we pray that it might begin to shape our thinking to reflect upon especially the political issues of our day from a biblical framework. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are indeed, as everybody knows, ever since uh, middle of last spring, already in the uh, midst, deeply within the midst of the uh, political season, getting ready for the presidential election, which will be a little bit less than a year away, and so things are going to really get intense. And after the horrific things that occurred in Paris last Friday, uh, with that attack we see that anything, any little thing, can happen here in the United States or internationally that will have an impact on this election and will change how voters perceive the issues and what is going on uh, around the world. And we need to be very much aware of of what is happening and how it can Im- impact us. But as we enter this political season as Christians, we need to think about the question, what does the Bible say about politics? It's controversial enough that we teach the Bible and that we believe the Bible and that we believe the Bible is the inerrant infallible Word of God. And many people say, well, you can talk about anything, but don't talk about religion and politics. What a, what a boring life they may, they must lead. The only thing worth talking about is, the word of God, and how we are to govern ourselves as his creatures. And we have to understand that from the framework of his word. And I've been waiting for the time when we would get to this chapter. Pardon me while I try to fix this microphone. It's not set right. As we get to this chapter in First Samuel 8, because this is a, a, a significant chapter in Scripture addressing issues related to human government. So let's just review just a, a, a little bit the title of tonight's message is of Cabbages and Kings, thinking about what does the Word of God say about rulers and about human government. And we look at Samuel, at the structure of First of Samuel. The first seven chapters focus on that one person, Samuel, as God is preparing to bring about a dramatic change in Israel, and part of that dramatic change is there's going to be a shift that occurs in terms of how Israel is governed. Israel has been governed one particular way up to this point, and now the people are going to want to have a king like all of the other nations, and so there's going to be a shift and as a result of this shift, we're going to be introduced in, in chapter 9 to the first uh, king that God anoints over Israel. Anybody here tell me who the first king of Israel, first man crowned king of Israel was? Abimelech, that's right. I always love that trivia question. Uh, Gideon's son, now, you know, ask people, who was the first king of it, first man crowned king of Israel? And they always say Saul. That's because people don't listen. They always think, ah, who was, I said, who was the first man God anointed to be king of Israel? I didn't say that. I said, who's the first man crowned king? And in Judges chapter nine, the son of Gideon, Abimelech, is crowned king by the men of Shechem, and he reigned over Israel, it says, for two years. So that's just a little trivia question. So, Saul is the first one that God has anointed as king, and he's covered, uh, or the rise of, of, uh, Saul is really covered in chapters 8 through f- 9 through 15, and chapter, our 8 through 15, chapter 8 is a, is our transitional chapter, but because it sets the stage for what happens in the coming of a king, uh, I put it in the next division with Saul. And then we see the decline of Saul and the rise of David in chapter 16, through thirty-one. Now, at the end of chapter seven, we get a summary of of Samuel's life that he judged Israel, and he's the first judge that is indicates that they judge over all of Israel. Most of the other judges, whether it was Othniel or Deborah and Barak, or whether it was um, uh, Gideon or Jephthah or Samson, they were more regional. Whereas Samuel judges Israel, he's the first national judge. And he has a, we'll look at a map in a minute, he has a very narrow area where he travels in Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. These are areas in the hill country of Shomron, or Samaria, north of Jerusalem. He doesn't go down to to Judah. Uh, we looked at this last time, how God prepares to deliver the nation Israel from her enemies by grace in the first seven chapters. And then in the next uh, eight chapters, God establishes the office of the king from First Samuel 8 and First Samuel 8 through 15. Now, as we look at this, I'm going to introduce, just talk about how we know the Bible talks about politics and what it means and why it is significant. And I want to take us back to the founding fathers of this country why this is significant. We live in a world today that has so secularized history and so secularized the founding of this country that they have ignored and removed the role of Christianity on the thinking of the founders. Now, within the debates that go on among scholars, you have some who are all the way on one side who make it sound as if every founding father is a committed disciple of jesus christ with biblically orthodox theology and that's not true and and that's one of the criticisms i have of david barton and david barton has a lot of wonderful material but he overstates his case a little bit because a lot of the men that he quotes like charles chauncey and some others are unitarians they were the first unitarians they weren't strict bible believers in the same sense that we are but they are theists They do believe the Bible generally is the foundation of authority, and especially the foundation of morality, and gives the revelation that is significant in how man is to govern himself. And so in a looser sense, they are operating within a Judeo-Christian worldview even thomas jefferson is even though he was a deist and a skeptic and he took out his little razor blade and cut all the uh, uh, supernatural passages out of the bible and you can buy jefferson's bible and all the miracles and anything supernatural have all been uh, erased from that bible he he's a he's a rationalist but but even as a rationalist jefferson grew up was educated and was taught within the Milu, the atmosphere of a, of a Judeo-Christian theism. So he t- thought, in terms of the absolutes and the framework of Judeo-Christian theism, just like many Christians today uh, are, 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 are truly regenerate, but they have been so trained by the relativism and the postmodernism of our modern culture that even though they've been saved for ten or fifteen years and go to church every Sunday, they still think like a relativistic postmodern. They haven't let their their mind be renewed or renovated by the Word. That's that's how world worldview works. And we can go back and we can study the worldview and the thinking of the founding fathers and and answer the question: Where did they get their ideas? What influenced them? And and when they the um, uh, when the decision was made, uh, related to same-sex marriage back in July, and people would come out again and say, well, how can we know what the original intent of the founders was? We can't get inside their minds, but no, but we can go back and we can read their letters. Now, they didn't have email and Twitter, and they didn't post on Facebook, but they didn't have television. And they didn't have movies, and they didn't have the distraction of so much entertainment that we have today. And they wrote tomes of letters, and many of them kept diaries. And they not only wrote letters, but they gave many speeches and talks that were all written down. And we have massive amounts of information that can be evaluated. And one of those who evaluated this is a man uh, by the name of uh, Dr. Donald Lutz, was a professor at, of political science here at the University of Houston. And in 1983, he published the results of an extensive 10-year research project which analyzed over 15,000 political documents, including speeches, diaries, letters, and the private papers of the founding fathers during the period from 1760 to 1805, so during a period of 45 years. And they input this into computers and they analyze it looking for, for phrases and they looked for citations. Who did they quote the most? Who was most influential on the thinking? Is it John Locke? Is it Montesquieu? Is it Rousseau? Who influenced them the most? And they analyzed 3,154 citations. They published the results in the American Political Science Review, Volume 78. And the results were surprisingly in contradiction to what most people expected. The most often quoted source for political ideas was the Bible. How about that? They got their ideas from the Bible. They got it directly from the Bible and they got it indirectly from the sermons of the pastors in that time period, many of whom published their sermons. They had the, the most often quoted source for political ideas was the from the Bible was the book of Deuteronomy and uh, more than a third of all direct quotes came from the old testament they came from Deuteronomy they came from Joshua they came from Samuel they came from some of the older prophets but over half of them just came from Deuteronomy uh Deuteronomy itself which is a restatement of the mosaic law it's, it is moses a sort of summary and reminder of all the stipulations in the Mosaic Law to the people just before he went up to Mount Nebo and went to be with the Lord. Over 60% of all the references came from authors as a secondary source whose original source went back to the Bible. So they may have quoted from John Locke, but the idea that's quoted from John Locke had its origin from the Bible. John Locke was raised in a strong a Christian Puritan Home in England, and his ideas and his thinking was deeply influenced by the scripture. He wrote a number of theological treatises along with his philosophy, and so this influenced them. So when we look at at these these points, we realize that um, that that they're quoting from the Bible directly and indirectly. The second most quoted source is quoted one-fourth as frequently, and that was John Locke. And then, as I said, another 60% of all the references came from authors whose original source goes back to the Bible. They understood the biblical principles of, of humanity, that people were corrupt. That's why they created a con- the Constitution with checks and balances, because they knew that human beings were corrupt to the core, and there had to be a check that if any one person or one party got too much power, then it would threaten the survival of the constitution of the country, and it would threaten the survival of, of, of liberty. They understood the important role of righteousness. Proverbs twenty twenty eight says, Loyalty and truth preserve the king, and he upholds his throne by righteousness. The king gives stability to the land by justice, but a man who takes bribes overthrows it. So if we don't have a king, if we don't have rulers that have integrity, then it threatens the whole system. And sadly to say, we do not live in a time where the people have integrity. It is amazing how political parties and political leaders threaten significantly politicians i know from for pretty much a fact in this last issue with the uh, with the iran nuclear treaty that that there were a number of of democrats who wanted to vote against it but they were personally threatened you vote against this the president controls the purse strings of the party you won't get one dime from the party for your next election you've got uh, $5 million designated for a project in your congressional district, that money's going to go away, and you won't get that done if you vote for this. Over and over. It wasn't just blackmail. It was po- uh, political blackmail. And this is how Washington works. This is not how uh, the Founding Fathers designed this nation to work. But corruption reigns supreme across the board and in both parties, which is one reason why... Many people get frustrated because they vote in uh, a lot of people from one party or the other, and then they say, well, why can't we get anything done? And that is because of the, the this codependence between a, a lot of big business, uh, insurance. The insurance companies are making out like bandits with this Obamacare. Many people say, well, see, it would seem like common sense that they would be threatened by it, but they're making more money. And so it all comes down to those things. And it's, it's corruption. When you don't have righteousness and you don't have have truth, then the country erodes and rots from the inside. So we're talking about where we got these ideas. And the ideas that came into the U.S. Constitution, which is down here in the lower right, have their ultimate source in the Bible. But in our heritage as English-speaking peoples coming out, of, coming out of England and the colonies, we trace the ideas in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence back through several intermediate sources. And we come to understand that, that the ideas that are embedded in the, in the Declaration of Independence as well as in the Constitution are, are biblical ideas, and wh- whether or not people were Christians or not, they had their origin in the Bible. We go back to the ninth century a d and Alfred the Great, who was a Saxon king, wrote the Book of Dooms. Dooms was old English for laws and those laws came out of the Bible. They were based on the Bible, and uh, that was, they were not based on on a, a lot of previous laws uh, of the of the Danes or the Saxons but but primarily from uh from the Bible as it had its impact on on British British culture, on English culture. In fact, he was responsible for translating the Psalms from Hebrew into English. And he translated some other parts of the Bible into uh old English at, at that time. He was a very committed believer. Then you have another thread from Rabbi uh, Moses ben Maimon, known in in history as Maimonides, who uh, codified Jewish commercial law, which of course is based on Torah, uh, in the 12th century A.D. Then within the Roman Catholic Church, and remember at this time there's no Protestant church, all there was was the Roman Catholic Church, you had the development of church canon law. Lanfranc was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the uh, 11th century. Thomas Becket was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the, uh, in the tw- uh, 12th century, as was John of Salisbury, who was the Bishop of Chartres outside of Paris uh, in the 12th century. Then you have um, the Mag- Magna Carta which comes along and is written by, and there are really several Magna Carta's, by the way, not just one. It was sort of revised two or three times after uh, King John uh, was forced to sign it. But the basic thrust of it was that the king received his power from the barons. This comes to play later on in the 1600s when the, you have the uh, Stuart kings, James I from Scotland, who was James VI of Scotland, and Charles I, who asserted the divine right of monarchy. And over against that, there were the, Brit- uh, the British, the English rather, who said, no, 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 we have this tradition in English common law that the king is also under the law and he serves at the behest of the, uh, of the barons. And then all of this came came to uh, influence Sir William Blackstone, who was a judge, who was an Oxford law professor and wrote the, an extensive work called The Commentaries on the Laws of England that came out between 1765 and 1769. And that was how everybody learned to interpret law for the next hundred years. That was the standard, was what Blackstone said. He went through the history of law, explained all of these things. All of that was brought to bear on the Constitution. But all of those things, from the Magna Carta to the church law to Maimonides to Alfred the Great, had their source. Where did they go for the authority for law? They went back to the Bible. So we are, as Americans... With our Constitution and Declaration of Independence, we are structured on a a, a system of laws that has its source uh, in the Bible. And so when we come to chapters like 1 Samuel 8 that has a lot to say about politics and the the problems with the authority of a king and and, uh, what we might call federal government, then we need to pay attention to these things and take time to understand what the Scripture is saying. So as we come to 1 Samuel 8, let's just review it a little bit. or Let me give you a flyover. In the first three verses, we get the setting. The people reject the sons of Samuel. Samuel's old by this time, and uh, he has appointed his sons as as judges, but they are corrupt and they pervert the law, so the people say, we don't want them to rule over us. We want to have a king. And so in the in the next couple of verses, the elders of Israel came together and had a meeting with S- uh, Samuel at Ramah, which is where he lived, and they requested from him a king to rule over them like all the nations. That, that he's getting old, we need to have a king like all the other nations. And the key there is that phrase, like all the other nations. What kind of king did they have? And then in the next uh, four verses, and... Verses 6 through 9. First of all, Samuel takes it personally. He takes it as a rejection of his judgeship, and so he reacts, but how does he handle the reaction? He reacts and he goes to the Lord in prayer. That's how we ought to react to things that we don't like, is initially and immediately take it to the Lord in prayer. So he goes to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord says, look, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And so you need to tell them what the consequences are for rejecting me. And so in verses 10 through 18, in nine verses, Samuel lists all of these horrific consequences that are going to come once you get a king, because he's going to raise the taxes, he's going to increase the bureaucracy, he's going to uh, conscript your men into his army. All of these things are going to take place. And this is going to put a financial burden on you, and it will limit your liberty and your freedom. And then um, in the last part, that should be 19 and 20, 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20, the people reject the warning and continue to demand a king like all the other nations. They're just set in their thinking. They're not going to listen. Remember, God said that the Jewish people were stiff-necked and rebellious. They have set their mind on it, and so God's going to give them what they deserve, and that's going to be Saul. All of this is sort of foreshadowing that the first king isn't quite going to be, uh, the best king. And so when, uh, when Samuel comes back to the Lord to tell him what the people said, the Lord says to obey, o- obey their voice. Now, I got a video that, um, uh, that was uh, sent to me today just by chance Calvinist chance, okay that just fits this last part so perfectly where where Samuel tells the people this is what 's going to happen he he 's going to you 're going to get a king like this he 's going to take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots to be his horsemen. So he's going to have a conscription plan. He'll appoint captains over his thousands. He'll build a big military industrial complex. He'll have some plow his ground and reap his harvest. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He's going to start building the bureaucracy. Now, you got to pay the bureaucrats. And that's going to put a burden on the federal government when you start having to pay all the bureaucrats. And eventually this means they're going to have to raise your taxes. And this is eventually going to get out of control. And so I'm going to – I need to plug in real quick here, Eddie. So make sure we have sound because we don't want to miss the sound. That's all the good part. And this is from a a group called – Government Gone Wild. But it's interesting. It's like it was written just for this chapter.
1: This is Blazing Goldie again for another installment of Government Gone Wild. You know, we keep on hearing that if we want to get Congress back on track to representing us that we need to get the special interest out of politics. And I wholeheartedly agree. But what most fail to realize is that government itself is its own special interest and will do and or say almost anything to protect itself. Now stay tuned because at the end of this video I'm going to show you why our freedoms may be at stake if we don't cut government soon. Our federal government has seen an explosion in its size over the last 10 years And both political parties are to blame for this. How big has it grown? Over the last decade, the number of private sector employees has grown only 1%. But the number of federal government employees has grown 15%. We are now out of the era of big government and into the era of enormous government. Basically, Congress used this recession to expand government and entrench government workers. When this recession started, while you are worrying about paying the bills and keeping a roof over your family's head, the Transportation Department had one. Just one employee making over $170,000 a year. Today, that number is 1,690 employees. When this recession started, while you are worrying about keeping your job and putting food on your table... The Department of Defense had 1,868 employees making over $150,000 a year. Today, that number is 10,100 employees. In fact, when this recession started, the number of federal employees making more than $100,000 a year doubled in less than two years. And when you include salary and benefits, the average total compensation for a private sector employee in 2009 was? $61,000. $61,000. Now, take a guess what the average total compensation for a federal government employee was in 2009. A whopping $123,000, more than double that in the private sector. Do you really think these people will vote against any spending cuts? Now, this is the important part. There are approximately 21,300,000 government employees in this country. We'll talk about special interest. About 16% of this nation's voting electorate works for government. And most people have at least one person close to them, like a spouse, who will vote with them in an effort to keep their job. Well, that means at least 32% of the voting electorate will come out and vote against anyone who talks openly about spending cuts. And when that number hits 50%, well, it's game over, folks. And then we, the people, will be in the permanent minority. And therein lies the hidden danger of big government. Now, the only way we can make a difference is if people hear this message. Please, forward this video to everyone you know before we wake up one day and it's too late. Well, that's it for this edition of Government Gone Wild. Be sure to visit our website and sign up for our email updates and become a fan
0: now, does that fit First Samuel 8 or what? I mean, that is the, 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 the modern paraphrase of what Samuel is saying in First Samuel 8. And that, that's where we are. And do you think the people in this country will listen any more to this kind of a warning than they did in, in Israel in First Samuel 8? I'm like you. I don't think so. So the only hope is the Word of God. Because we live in a culture that's so imbued with postmodern relativism that we've lost integrity. And I don't even want to get sidetracked and talk about what's been going on at Mizzou and at Yale and at Dartmouth and probably coming to a school near you soon as you have students who are undereducated, under and are are riled up by special interest groups whose goal is to create chaos uh on the college campus and to tear down what we have so that they can uh move on with their uh with their agenda. So the only solution is to get the word of God out for people to understand it. So moving let's I went through that slide already. A couple of things that we ought to take pay attention to from the founding fathers. John Adams said now, the reason I'm going into these quotes is because we have a culture today that says, well, first of all, we we are never were a Christian nation. Secondly, we have a group of people today that say that, that Christianity should have no, uh, no place to go except inside the door. You can have free speech, but only at the church. You can't take it out into the marketplace. You certainly can't mention it at work. You certainly can't mention it if you are a judge or if you are a county clerk, or if you're working for the government, you have to leave your religious beliefs at home. And the goal there is to remove all Christian influence from the bureaucracy. So listen to what the founding fathers said. John Adams, the general principle on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now, I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. Elias uh, Boudinot, who was a president of the Continental Congress, said, if the moral character of a people once degenerates, their political character must follow. These considerations, in other words, You get the leaders that you deserve because the leaders come out of the mass of that corrupt population. These considerations should lead to an attentive solicitude to be religiously careful in our choice of all public officers and judge of the tree by its fruits. Now, for those who say that the courts have said we're not a religious country, we're not a Christian country, the New York Supreme Court ruled in a case in the late 1800s that the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity, the people whose manners and morals have been elevated and inspired by means of the Christian religion. Without Christianity, this country will not have freedom or liberty because they go together. Only the Judeo-Christian framework that values life and individual responsibility can give fruit to a nation of liberty and freedom. The Florida Supreme Court said that the Christian concept of right and wrong or right and justice motivates every rule of equity. It is the guide by which we dissolve domestic frictions and the rule by which all legal controversies are settled. In uh, Florida Supreme Court, the Bible is the foundation for our whole legal system. And then this is a three-slide quote from Noah Webster when you be, from his book on the history of the United States. He says, when you become entitled to exercise the right of voting for public officers, let it be impressed on your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. The preservation of a Republican government depends on the faithful discharge of this duty. If the citizens neglect their duty and place unprincipled men in office, the government will soon be corrupted. Laws will be made not for the public good so much as for the selfish or local purposes. Corrupt or incompetent men will be appointed to execute the laws. The public revenues will be squandered on unworthy men and the rights of the citizen will be violated or disregarded. If a Republican government fails to secure public prosperity and happiness, now that's not Republican in terms of the Republican Party. That is a republic as opposed to a democracy or a monarchy. If a Republican government fails to secure public prosperity and happiness, it must be because the citizens neglect the divine commands and, the, and elect bad men to make and administer the laws. Intriguing men can never safely be trusted. In summary, he says they will corrupt government. They will make laws not for the general welfare, but for selfish or local purposes. They will appoint other corrupt men to execute their laws. Fourth, they will squander the citizens' taxes upon those who are unworthy. And fifth, they will violate the citizens' rights. So what we see here in 1 Samuel 8 is a warning of what happens when government goes out of control. It's not that government is inherently evil. There are some libertarians who I've heard say that, that government is evil. It's not government that's evil. It's evil people in the government. We have to understand, if we're going to talk about what the Bible says about human government, we have to understand where human government derived. In the first part of the Bible, up through the call of Abraham, in those first 11 chapters, we have an age called the age of the Gentiles. God creates the uh, planet in, in perfection, perfect environment, no sin, and this is during the period that Adam and Eve are in the garden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and the first little bit of chapter 3. It's called the dispensation of innocence. It ends with the fall. And then God revises the covenant that he made with Adam at creation. And this is what's described as usually the curses in Genesis 3:14 through 19. And this begins a dispensation called the dispensation of human conscience. And the dispensation of human conscience, the highest form of authority that God has delegated is either the individual or the leader in the home, the, the father. It's, it's patriarchal. This, of course, was quite successful, wasn't it? Wrong. That man's heart was so evil that God decided he needed to destroy everybody on the planet. The human race was so immersed in the demonic that the daughters of men were marrying these fallen angels who took on human flesh, and they were called the sons of God. And that led to the need to, to eradicate the human race so that you could restore a perfect gene pool through which the Messiah would come. So God established a new covenant with Noah at the after the flood, after they got off the ark, and that began the dispensation of human government. And we say that human government is the fourth divine institution. The first is individual responsibility. The second is marriage. The third is family. That all occurs before there's any sin. God initiated these institutions in the social structure of mankind in order to provide for the stability and the perpetuation of the human race when there's no sin. So if there is sin, there has to be some additional... Uh, divine institutions in order to preserve man in a sinful environment. The first of those was human government. The second was the, the nations. And so in the Noahic covenant, uh, there are uh, five basic stipulations. First command is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They failed that at the Tower of Babel. They're to eat meat and not blood. Eating meat, eating animal flesh, was not allowed by God prior to the flood. The third thing was capital punishment for animals. If an animal kills a human being, they're to lose their life. If a human being murders another human being, they're to lose their life. Not killing in warfare or self-defense, but only, only murder. Fourth, God promised to never judge the earth by water Again. And the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. And as I always say, when you think of the rainbow, don't think of God's promise that it'll never rain again. Think first, got to go eat a steak. Second, you got to execute the criminals, those who, the, the, the murderers. Third, then you remember that God said he would never judge the earth by water again. But don't forget those first two because they're very important. When we get into the millennial kingdom, I don't think we're going to be eating steak anymore. Yeah, get it while you can. All right, now, let's look at the, um, uh, think a little bit about what the Scripture says about human government. And I may have lost a slide here, so I'm going to look for it briefly, just a second. And um, I don't know where it went. I know I had it in there. Oh, well, I'll read you the text anyway. So, as we look at government, God established government at the Noahic Fall, and he designed it to restrain evil and to promote righteousness. That is the role of government, is to restrain evil and to promote righteousness. When government is perverted by by paganism, which doesn't recognize that the ultimate authority is God, and in paganism man is looking to something in the creation as the ultimate source of meaning, then the function of government shifts, and government is viewed as something that will replace God and provide what only God can provide. Only security can come from God. Only God can provide us with happiness and the meaning in life. But when we have a a government that rejects God or ignores God, then the government seeks to be the source of security and happiness and it's the government that is going to take care of everybody from the cradle to the grave. So the state, rather than God, becomes the source of happiness and prosperity. Now, in the pagan counterfeit political theory, the ultimate architect is Satan, because Satan is the prince and the power of this world. Man uh, becomes the source of ethics the source of laws, and so this is going to be uh, relativistic, and man becomes a god unto himself. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator God, is left out of the picture, and man then becomes his own ultimate reference point and his own standard, and so his values focus on self-love, self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification, and self-deification. We have a great example of what's going on right now in the debate over what to do with all these Syrian refugees. On one side, you have people who say, we need to exercise compassion. But this is a compassion that's based on self-love, the desire to feel good about helping people. And it's, it's just like the arguments against harsh penalties for crimes. The focus is on the, the, the potential criminal or the the needy person rather than on the innocent person whose life may be totally changed by opening the floodgates to let all these refugees come in? Is it compassionate to let a flood of refugees come into a country, bringing with them who knows what disease? Is it compassionate to bring in um, to bring in a flood of refugees that may include, we don't know, maybe they do, maybe they don't, but could very likely include those who wish to do us harm, those who are terrorists, those who seek to uh, come in under the uh, disguise of a refugee, and there was at least one that did that. And, and we don't know. I, I, I've heard people say, well, we don't know. There's never been a refugee that's done uh, a terrorist act, but that doesn't mean that they're not out there. The past is not the key to the future. When you look at uh, what's been happening in this country over the last 30 years, since 1980, a huge number of people have come in illegally, and in some cases legally with student visas, who seek to do us harm. I have a good friend that I was in college with who, instead of going in the military, uh, went to work for Houston Police Department, and he was with the Houston Police Department for for about 25 to 28 years. And during the last 15 years that he was with HPD, he was the uh, liaison between HPD and the FBI Counterterrorism Task Force. And he retired from this job in 1999, two years before 9-11. And what the stories he tells me will scare you to death, that that part of his job was to try, to track down Uh, Students who'd come over here to places like you'd never think of. You're you're thinking Rice and U of H and A&M. No, there are places like San Jacinto Junior College and Wharton Junior College and all these out-of-the-way little uh, smaller schools, and they would come and go to school for a semester, and then they would drop out, and then they would lose them. And he figures that they were probably close... Close to, to to several hundred thousand of these students just between 85 and 99 that dropped off everybody's radar. And he said most of them were sleepers. But even if 95 percent of them uh, got, got seduced by American Western culture, that's still going to leave 15 or 20 thousand jihadis out there just waiting to be called up. That's a lot of people who can do a lot of damage. Not only that, we've had I've had other people, former Border Patrol, former Customs agents, former law enforcement people, who have told me that that somewhere between twenty and fifty thousand uh, Hezbollah sleepers came across in the period from the eighties and the nineties, and even into the period since nine eleven, because we haven't shut the door. Now, if if try this analogy on for size. If, if you're being compassionate because we've had a whole bunch of bad floods here and you live down by the Buffalo Bayou like Claude does and all of a sudden some, one of your neighbors gets flooded out of the house and they're just soaked and everything they have is soaked and the Bayou's risen up and, and soaked them and you know there's nasty critters in the Bayou. There's, there's cotton mouths and all kinds of stuff. And these people come to your door and they, they just want to come in out of the cold and get dried off and, and yet you think you see something move in their, in their stuff. Now, is it compassionate to the people in your house to let these refugees come into the house when they may be harboring a poisonous snake? Now, that would not be kind to the people in the house. Now, that doesn't mean you're just going to shut the door on your neighbors and tell them to to uh, go somewhere else. But you want to make sure that you thoroughly search all of their possessions and everything that they have with them to make sure that, that it's safe and they're not going to be bringing a little nasty into the house with them. And that's the idea. You, it's great to be compassionate, but compassion isn't in one direction. Compassion doesn't just look at the needs of the refugees. It also looks at being compassionate to the citizens of the United States to protect them because there is a mandate in the Constitution to provide for national security, but there's no mandate in the Constitution to show compassion. And we have to understand the distinction. It's not that we shouldn't, but there's a priority. And the safety of the United States is superior to compassion to those who are to somewhere else. So when we talk about the Bible defining defining government, the first assault on it came in Genesis chapter chapter 11. And this is at the Tower of Babel and in Genesis chapter 11 you have uh, Nimrod who comes along and he establishes a a counter government and a counter culture and an autonomous government at a place called Babel. And they build a tower as a direct affront to God called the Tower of Babel. And, uh, uh, it's still a symbol. It's a literal place, but it still symbolizes everything that's evil in the earth that is in, in, in that is counter to God. So that's the first attack with, uh, uh, literal Babylon that is also becomes the type and the, mo- uh, the model for the future kingdom of the Antichrist, and Nimrod becomes a type of the Antichrist. So it sets the stage for this conflict between autonomous human government versus human government that is submissive uh, submissive to God. Now, when God has called his own people to establish his own nation, the Jewish people, he established a distinct form of government known as a theocracy. And theocracy means God rules. Now, this is an important thing to understand because when God rules, he is going to define the nature of the government and he defined the laws. And so he gave the Torah, the Ten Commandments, and then the 603 other commandments that make up the what we call the Mosaic Law, and that was designed to be the government now, uh, for the people, the law code for the people, that was like their constitution. But they don't ha- didn't have a president or a prime minister or a king because God was the, was the ruler. And that was based upon his character and his, his integrity. Deuteronomy 32.3, Moses says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. So you have a perfect ruler who's perfectly right all the time. All his ways are justice, a God of truth without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, often today, what we hear from people on the left and some libertarians is that the Christian righteous wishes to impose a theocracy on the rest of us. Now, this is an argument that's based on, first of all, an ignorance of history, Secondly, it's based on an ignorance of the founding fathers. Third, it's based on an ignorance of biblical Christianity. And fourth, it's based on an ignorance of the so-called Christian right. Now, there was a book that came out by a guy named Kevin Phillips who had had a a minor position in, in George W. Bush's government who wrote a book called American Theocracy, and he made some outlandish claims and he made a lot of claims about economics, and he made a lot of claims about the oil business, and I don't have background in those. But the center section of the book had to do with the role of Christianity in this country. And he cited a whole lot of people, people, m- many of whom I personally knew, people like Tim LaHaye, people like uh, um, F- Jerry Falwell, numerous other people who I knew well and said that they all wanted to establish a theocracy in America. And I said, well, no, they didn't. They just wanted to go back to the Constitution. They just wanted to establish the the frame of government that was built into the Constitution, not establish a theocracy where God rules. But you see, we have a segment of people in this country who are so licentious and so uh, against any source of absolutes or moralities that if you even want to have a government that says this is right, this is wrong, these people are evil and these people aren't, then you're immediately being a theocrat because you're trying to impose God's morality on them. But our founding fathers, and that's the point of those quotes I put up earlier, our founding fathers understood that some morality's got to govern some country. Every country in this world has a moral system. Some are terrible. The United States has one that is built on the scripture, and that's why we have the freedoms and the liberty and the success that we have in this country. We wouldn't have it if it was based on the the kind of ethical system that you have in in India. That's what produced the Indian culture that that, that only became successful as a result of the British Raj. That's what happened in China, but, but what became good in China before the communists came along was the result of the British missionaries that took the gospel there and began to impact that culture for Christianity back in the late 1800s and early, early 1900s. What makes a difference in many of these nations and brought them out of the dark ages, especially in Africa, had to do with the influence of biblical Christianity and biblical ethics. No, we're not trying to have a theocracy, but we are having to have the same kind of moral, ethical, righteous foundation for law so that we can have stability, so that we can reduce criminality, so that we can have true liberty and freedom. But there are many people who they're so hostile to God that they're hostile to anything that, that reflects God. Now, a theocracy today that we have on the scene is Islam. Uh, the theocratic rules of Islam are codified, the laws are codified in what is called Sharia law and, and in the Quran. and the result of, of a nation that implements Sharia law is that they want to remove all women from public life, And I I always want to ask people who are committed liberals and feminists, why are you so easy on the radical Muslims who want to take over the culture? Because they're going to put all all you women who have these jobs, who are working for CNN and ABC and NBC, they're they're just going to take you home and put a a hijab over you and a burqa over you, and you won't be seen or heard from again. And they'll probably rape you because that's what they do. If you don't understand that, read some things. Just Google rapes in Sweden, rapes in Norway. 100% of the rapes that are taking place in, in the Scandinavian countries because they've opened their arms and they've embraced the viper. And it's in their culture. And 100% of the rapes, Sweden is a number one rape country in Western civilization, number two in the world, and of the rapes between adults who don't know each other are between immigrant Muslims and ethnic Swedish girls. Same is true in Norway. Same is true in in Finland. Because this is what is produced by that culture. Because they are, if they rape a non-Muslim, then it doesn't count. It's a freebie. It's okay. So that is Sharia law. They will execute all homosexuals and adulterers. They will execute all transvestites and cross-dressers and other gender-confused individuals. They'll cut off the appendages of thieves and robbers. That's not in the Bible. That is Sharia law, and that is hostile to freedom. You've never seen a Muslim country produce liberty or freedom or emphasize the dignity of the individual. And that's because it's counter to their whole religious system and their whole structure. But God, as a creator of men and women, gives dignity to every human being and every man and woman because they are created in the image and the likeness of God. So government then is later designed by God after the flood in order to restrain evil And, you know, there's a lot of hostility toward George Bush from the left. And I figured out a long time ago it was because as soon as he called the terrorists evildoers, he was buying into absolute categories that they rejected. And they knew that if America bought into an absolutist morality where there was true evil and true good, the liberal progressive agenda was was over with. And that's why they hated him with such vitriol. It didn't have to do with anything else because he was as progressive. I mean, true, true conservatives really don't care for a lot of things that George W. Bush did because he wasn't an ideological conservative. He wasn't a committed constitutionalist. He did love this country. He did support the military. He had great personal integrity. But he wasn't a committed constitutionalist. So this is a problem. Now I don't think I'm going to stop there because this is where I would get into 1 Samuel 8. Earlier I said something about the uh, we're talking about the geography so I'll show this slide and come back to it next week. Here's here's Jerusalem. Here's Ramah about 10 miles, 8 to 10 miles north of Jerusalem where Samuel lived. The cycle of his movement was here, Gilgal, Bethel, Mizpah, this is just where he went, just in the hill country of Samaria. but his sons, I think Edan has just showed up there you are good we 're just about to finish. Come on in, just sit down and i 'll wrap up here 's Beersheba down here, and so this is where he set where Samuel set his sons to um, uh, to to govern so that gives you a little bit of the framework, and I think one of the reasons that that uh, when they said that his sons were out of control and that they didn't walk in his ways and turned after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice, they were a long way from daddy's oversight. And he probably didn't get down there so much, and so they could get away with it. Anyway, so we've laid the foundation for what the Scripture in the Old Testament, what the Hebrew Scripture says, laying the foundation for human government and the need for a human government and leaders with integrity. We'll come back and look at passages in Deuteronomy uh, to further set the stage before we get into 1 Samuel 8 next time. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to go through the Scripture to understand that you address as the Creator God who made the heavens and the earth and it seas, you address every issue in life. You address every issue related to individual personal life, from from marriage and family to government. And you t- teach what is needed to have good government and what is a danger to a civilization and to a people when that government goes out of control. And, Father, we pray that as we continue this study that you will uh, help us to think through these issues, especially in light of of choosing leaders from the local level all the way up to the highest office in the land uh, in the coming year. Father, we pray that you might help us to um, focus on our spiritual life as well and our walk with you, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.